Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I've been to a couple of wars. I understand what it means to lead troops in combat, and you don't want rookies doing it. And so, unfortunately, it's very hard to get that across to somebody like Senator Tuberville that's never heard a shot fired in anger and never served in the military. This week, the action in the Senate was all about the annual defense authorization, the NDAA. Usually, the argument about what goes into this enormous bill that governs everything the military can and can't do well, is a word soup cooked up by defense nerds. You may recall things like SDI, the GWAT, and closing Gitmo, all controversial in their own day and all eventually resolved through the historically bipartisan NDAA process. But this time around, many in Washington are beginning to wonder if a new set of acronyms is fatally imperiling our armed forces. Issues like DEI, CRT, and, well, abortion may be sinking a bill that has never failed to pass in 60 years. It's setting up a dramatic clash. In the House, the Armed Services Committee voted its version of the bill out of committee by a count of 58 to 1. But by the time hardline conservatives finished loading it up with controversial amendments, it passed by a measly nine-vote margin. In the Senate, Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer, passed their version of the bill on Thursday night. It had bipartisan support and wasn't loaded up with the social policy amendments that clogged the House bill. Meanwhile, in the background, a separate drama is playing out, that of Senator Tommy Tuberville's beef with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin over abortion policy, which has led the freshman senator to hold hostage more than 200 military appointments, including the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's the president's top military policy advisor. The combination of these two events has been more than enough to make lawmakers, lobbyists, and service members alike begin to wonder, is this the year that the NDAA fails? Will this last sacred piece of bipartisanship in Congress succumb to the divisive forces that have sunk many before? Bluntly, is Congress now on a path to putting politics ahead of national security? Joining me to discuss the prognosis for this year's NDAA and the perils of this standoff is a man who knows what it's like to write one of these bills. Because he has. Many times before. He's a former staff director at the Senate Armed Services Committee and a retired two-star general. And if you're a senator involved in national security issues, he's probably also the guy you call for advice. His name is Arnold Panaro. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Arnold Panaro's entire life has been national security. As a young man in 1968, he enlisted in the Marine Corps and led a platoon in Vietnam. He won a Bronze Star and Purple Heart for his service. After leaving active duty, he joined Senator Sam Nunn's staff in Washington and stood by his side for 24 years. 
Working for the powerful Georgia senator at the Armed Services Committee, Panaro got to know all the key players, current and future. For instance, as far back as the late 70s, he met a young John McCain, then a Navy liaison to the Senate, as well as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Senator Joe Biden. In Washington, there are a lot of people who are defense or military policy experts, and there are many more who are politics experts. Panaro has carved out a unique role as one of the city's foremost experts on the intersection of defense policy and politics. He's held some big jobs in both the Clinton and Bush administrations, served as director of the Marine Corps Reserve, and launched a consulting firm downtown that still occupies most of his time. He has a reputation for knowing everyone on the Hill. I talked to him in Politico's Arlington headquarters about what are the big challenges facing the military. Spoiler, it's not abortion policy. How or if Congress has perverted its oversight role of the Pentagon. What, if any, of the right's objections to military wokeness are grounded in facts. And if an NDAA will pass this year at all. And for those of you who like some good gossip, General Panaro also has some thoughts on which senators are worth paying attention to and who he'd rather not share a foxhole with. Set up from your perspective as someone who was watching this from the beginning, when was the point where you realized, uh-oh, it's going to be different this year? So when we recognized it was going to be different was Mike Rogers reported out an armed services authorization bill in his first year chair that got 58 yes votes and one no vote. So total bipartisan. Yeah. But when I knew it was going to go south with when the defense appropriation bill being marked up by Ken Calvert came to full committee, they added all the poison pills on the social programs. So I would say both uh, the defense funding bill and the defense observation bill in the, in the House are headed to the dustbin of history. Those bills will never pass in their current form. I don't believe they'll end up in their current form. I believe the leadership will, will get things worked out. And some of the offending provisions will get knocked out completely. Some will get watered down and some will stay in in a form that the Pentagon won't be wild about. But guess what? That happens every year with lots of things. The Congress is supposed to make decisions differently than the Pentagon. The Pentagon is not 100% right. They make mistakes all the time. The executive branch thinks that when they send stuff to Congress, it ought to be just totally rubber stamped and and 100%. They'll spend three years arguing about something in the Pentagon, and they'll be highly divided on it. But once they send it to the Senate or the House, oh, no, you can't change anything. So, you know, we've been around that barn uh, many times. Let me ask you, because you have been in the middle and seen up close some of the big debates over the years, not just about defense policy as we traditionally think about it, but when social issues intersect with defense policy, um, gays in the military, of course, during the, the Clinton era. On this recent spate of issues, just as someone who knows this stuff really, really well, the reproductive rights policy was a post-Dobbs policy by the Biden administration to allow men and women in uniform to get repaid and take time off if they required uh if they want to go get an abortion, basically, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. Republicans say, wait a second, the Hyde Amendment says no federal funds for abortion. You're kind of like, this is a loophole that, that you know, you're, you're getting around the Hyde Amendment here. It's basically the same thing because, you know, you don't get paid time off for other things. Just in your opinion, do the Republicans have a legitimate point that this is a radical change in policy? Or from your perspective, is it 
you know, this is pretty in line with how the Pentagon deals with other healthcare issues or related issues. You know, I think it's very much in line with the way that we provide healthcare to our military and our retirees. And every local area that you're in may not be able to treat whatever medical condition somebody has. So they may have to fly them to Walter Reed, or they may have to take them to Fort Belvoir, or they may have to take them to the burn center out in San Antonio. So every local hospital in every local medical care, even if you're out on the economy, may or may not be able to do that. So we move our military around to where the medical needs can be served all the time. And uh, obviously, uh, we provide medical care for the active duty uh, military and their families and for the retirees and their families. In fact, one of the biggest challenges we have in the Pentagon now is the health care bill is about $54 billion a year, 10 million beneficiaries, of which are 5.6 million are retirees and their dependents. We're spending more taking care of the retirees than we are spending taking care of the active duty military. I would wow. say my comment about this doesn't relate to my personal views. Sure, sure, I'm a sure. Catholic. I have personal views about abortion, but the Pentagon uh, and the Justice Department and everybody I've talked to believes what they're doing is legal and therefore they can do it. So inside that building, this is not this is not seen as some radical Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, wild social policy. I certainly don't pick that up yeah. when, when I'm talking to people in the building. That's um, interesting. OK. And, yeah. and, you know, it hasn't been used that much. So one of the things that, you know, right. it's people, not like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but look, like what percentage what, of soldiers look, are having abortions? What, yeah. What's driving this is clearly a campaign issue. No, I, I mean, know. The, yeah. the abortion policies are huge campaign issues. This of has course. nothing to do with national security. It has everything to do with people's base and, and fundraising and things of that nature, which I think is pathetic because we shouldn't subject our national security to that. And and certainly I'm a supporter of the Hyde Amendment. You know, I'm a Catholic. but And you don't see this as a violation of it? Well, I'm not a legal expert, but I feel very confident that with the Justice Department and the Pentagon lawyers, and even uh, Jack Reed was on the floor of the Senate uh, here recently talking about that. And he talked about Senator Joni Ernst's amendment that basically would prohibit what right. they're doing in the Pentagon that failed in the committee markup. But he said even Joni- If it passes, I mean, uh, that's the way to do this. It's policy. Right, exactly. Yeah. No, this is the way you-, you Legislate. the Legislative branch, if you disagree with the executive branch policy, you bring up a limit. This is why I have a huge problem with what Senator Tuberville is doing. Uh, he's a coward in my book. He won't even bring an amendment to the floor and get and it voted on to change the policy. And let's back up. Let's back up for a second and very clearly explain what Tuberville is doing. And then we're going to get into the weeds on, on this. Yeah. So right now, every year we have, uh, we handle the military promotion process. So nothing is more sacrosanct in our military than making sure politics doesn't enter the promotion process. We have laws, rules, and regulations that govern promotion boards, selection boards, and we pick the best qualified, particularly as you go into the flag and general officer rank, because these are the people that are going to lead our troops in combat. I was a platoon commander in charge of 50 Marines. I was a division commander in charge of 22,000 Marines. And you want your best people leading. And that's what happens in the flag and general officer. So right now, Senator Tuberville, because he disagrees with the policy of paying for travel for people that need to get reproductive health services outside a state that might prohibit it, is blocking, as one senator can do under the Senate rules that everything operates with unanimous consent, 273 uh, flag and general officer nominations, including the one for chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the commandant of the Marine Corps, the chief of staff of the Army, the commander of the 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force. So Millie's replacement. Millie's replacement is can't take. So Just to and, explain what Millie is, uh, the chairman of Joint Chiefs is retiring. 
because he, he has a four-year tour. Yep. The commandant of the Marine Corps has already retired from his four-year tour. And Eric Smith, who the president picked and the building picked and the Congress approved uh, out of committee, uh, can't take over as commandant of the Marine Corps because he's on hold from Senator Tuberville. And um, again, Senator Tuberville is not either in committee or on the floor, offered an amendment to get a vote on. And in the legislative branch of government, if you disagree with something in the executive branch, the way you try to change it is you try to pass legislation that basically will change. And many times that, I mean, the Senate Armed Services Committee, House Armed Services Committee, Appropriations Committee have changed stuff in the Pentagon every year for decades. So it it does happen. Yeah. But you either have the, in the Senate, you either have the votes or you don't. Yeah. And so in, in committee, Joni Ernst, who's a great senator, National Guard, combat vet, super, super senator, had a provision to block it, and she didn't pass it. And Senator Schumer, the majority leader, said to Senator Tuberville, look, bring your amendment up on the floor. I'll let you have a vote. We'll let you have a vote, and you'll either have the votes or you don't. He won't bring it up. I don't know why, but to me, it's a lack of courage because this is what you do if you want to change something. You don't penalize our military. You don't take our senior military as pawns and hostages. You don't block their promotion. You don't deprive our young men and women that could go into harm's way at a moment's notice of their best leaders. And so I've heard him say, well, you know, the the number two or number three, the acting, they can take over. Look, if we thought the number two or number three ought to be number one, we'd have picked them to be number (laughs) one. So what I say is, okay, let's say you've got a brain tumor uh, and you're going to have to have a serious operation. You want the resident that's done three operations operating on you, or do you want the neurosurgeon that's been doing it for 10 years? It's been hard for us to sort of really wrap our heads around how much is this affecting military readiness? How much is this really having an impact on the uh, Pentagon's ability to, you know, tackle its its, its top priorities? Well, I, w- I would say it is having an impact. And unfortunately, the only way you could ever prove it to somebody like Senator Tuberville, who's never served, never heard a shot fired in anger, doesn't understand our military, despite the fact that in Alabama, one of our greatest states for supporting our military and military bases is you're not going to really be able to prove it to anybody, to young Marines and young soldiers die in combat because they're not as well led. Mothers and fathers basically give us their sons and daughters because they expect them to be well-trained, well-equipped, and well-led. The training is still going on. The equipping is going on. Our industry gives our military the finest technology, so they're never in a fair fight. But you cannot lead, you know, you don't have the best leaders in a lot of the key jobs because of this whole. And so how do you evaluate that? Um, You know, uh, other than than the people that are charged with basically winning our nation's wars, who've been doing this for a lot longer than Senator Tuberville has, uh, and they understand, you know, they've been some of the, the names that Senator Reed and Senator Kane and others talked about last night, six combat tours. You know, they've been deployed for 20 of their 30 years in uniform. They understand what it means to, to lead troops in combat. I've been to a couple of wars. I understand what it means to lead troops in combat. And you don't want rookies doing it. And so, unfortunately, it's very hard to get that across to somebody like Senator Tuberville that's never heard a shot fired in anger and never served in the military. Have you talked to him about it? I have not. Yeah. But I mean, people better than I are talking to him about it. He certainly ought to pay a lot more attention to General C.Q. Brown, who's going to be the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or, or General Eric Smith, who's going hopes to be the commandant of the Marine Corps. These are a lot more credible people talking to Senator Tuberville than Arnold Panaro. Let me ask you a couple questions about this. You talk frequently with senators on, on this issue. What, you know, if you 
can name names, that'd be great. But if not, that's fine. What are senators on the Republican side and the Democratic side uh, telling you about this? What are the different camps? Look, I would say I would say to their great credit, the minority leader, Senator McConnell, who's a tremendous supporter of national security, always extremely helpful. Yeah. Senator Joni Ernst, who even offered the provision. Uh, Senator Dan Sullivan, uh, Marine, served in combat. He was actually in one of my Fourth Marine Division units when he was in Fourth Recon really? in Alaska. Good soldier? Great, great Marine, a great <laughs> Marine, and and a, and a really a good, uh, you know, foreign policy expert. Did he have uh, a nickname? They, pardon? Did he have a nickname? We, we don't talk about that. That's, <laughs> high, that's highly classified. Um, I would say I would say they're encouraging Senator Tuberville to release his hold. But they also, yeah. as senators, recognize that in the Senate, we have this process where one senator, because of unanimous consent, it doesn't mean they should do it. So it you have to respect right that to, to a it, certain extent. They respect that. Yeah. What I'm concerned about is, and, some, and Tuberville has said, well, look, why doesn't Schumer just use the cloture process that we're now using for federal judges? Number one, that would be a huge, huge mistake. Right. I was in at the Aspen uh, yeah. Security Forum last week. Right. And Senators Cornyn and Risch were on a panel with Senator Coons, very bipartisan yep. in most of what they said. But Cornyn and Risch repeatedly said to Coons, just tell Schumer to put one of these guys on the floor. You'll get 60 votes. Do another. You'll get 60 votes. And that'll break the logjam somehow. Totally don't agree. As much as I respect both of them, they're terrific supporters of national security. John Cornyn helped improve the Scythius process, which keeps China from buying stuff in this country. Risch is a great leader on our foreign relations committee in the Senate. But you don't want to turn our military into federal judges. You don't right. want to politicize oh, that process. Yeah. And this the, hasn't happened, right? We the, it's never happened. Yeah. We've never used cloture for military noms, for noms that, again, it, it, Tuberville admits and everybody admits his whole has nothing to do with the qualifications of any of the people. So once you did it for one, first of all, you could never get 273 done. It'd take over a year. Number two, it wouldn't be right to basically do it for the senior brass and not take care of the troops. We never leave our wounded uh, or dead on the battlefield. And so, but three, it would totally politicize the military. When, when I remember when they started doing cloture for federal judges, they did it for one. They yeah. did it for two. Guess what? They do it for 100% now. So if it if you started that process, then some senator six months from now, it might be a Democratic senator that says, you know what? Yeah. I don't like the fact that Biden's giving cluster munitions to Ukraine. I'm going to block the incoming you know, chief of the Coast Guard yeah. uh, until he agrees that he isn't going to send them any more cluster munitions. So um, it would be a really, really bad precedent set to start using cloture for military nominations, particularly uh, when he has another uh, way of doing it, which is offer an amendment, try to get it passed. Congressman Jackson passed an amendment uh, on the House floor that's in the House Armed Services Committee bill that would, if, if that bill became law, would have in effect stopped what they're doing in the Pentagon, uh, paying for travel and, and providing leave. Now, I don't think it will come out of conference. I don't think, uh, and even if it did, uh, the president would veto it. They wouldn't override the veto. So that provision never has any chance of becoming law. And everybody knows that. So, you know, that's the bottom line. You either have the votes or you don't. And when you don't, you basically don't take it out on our uniform combatant military. Having talked to uh, senators about this, what do you predict is the way out of this? Well, my big concern right now is, and I kind of harken back, there was a movie about the Pentagon with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman called No Way Out. 
And the problem is right now, because Tuberville will not offer an amendment, says he won't even doesn't even want to have a vote till they stop the policy, which is just really backwards in terms of how anything works. I don't see any way so anyone out could right do now. that. As you, as you, you know, unless, unless I think I think his his colleagues on the Republican side are going to have to tell him, and the folks back home in Alabama are going to have to say, "Wait a minute, you shouldn't be doing this." And so I think I think if there's a way for, and by the way, you're now having military spouses write in. You're having more and more uh, back home understanding of what's going on. Uh, perhaps during the August recess, I don't see it getting solved unless there's some miracle here today. Uh, before the August recess. So they're all going to be gone for six weeks. And if there's some kind of back home pressure during that six weeks, you know. But they're leaving, you don't think, before. It, it sure doesn't look like anything's going to occur, you know, unless he's willing to accept Schumer's offer to have a vote and have a vote up or down and, and then release his hold. But on, on the other side of this, this is a little out of your wheelhouse, but do you see when you're you know, looking at closely at the politics of this, do you see an enormous amount of pressure from the, the pro-life advocates, from the, the, the folks that are cheering Tuberville on because they see this as a fight for the pro-life I think I think he's getting uh, strong encouragement from that group. Yeah. Um, again, I've made it very clear what my personal beliefs are as a Catholic. Yeah. And I've gone to a lot of, of, of those marches. and, hmm. and But I, I'm totally vehemently angrily opposed to what Senator Tuberville is doing to our military leaders because the 82nd Airborne, the Ready Battalion, could go into harm's way in five minutes. Did anybody know that Saddam Hussein was going to invade Kuwait in August of 1990? So you don't know when our military or three MEFs is going to have to go into combat. Our military has to be ready. And so you can't deprive them of their top leaders. I also see the group that thinks our Pentagon has gotten Woke, whatever oh, that this is. This is my next. This is they, my next they, question. They are encouraging Tuberville, so they, yeah. they 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 made this broader than just the abortion issue. They are throwing this in the woke basket. Correct. Liberal, you know, right. uh, Social policy. Correct. At the Pentagon. That's right. So they. So he's getting I- encouragement yeah. on that end. Presidential again, candidate. Have you seen it come up? I haven't. I, I confess, I have not followed this too closely in terms of the presidential candidates weighing in. Obviously, DeSantis is a big woke in the Pentagon guy, but um, as someone who's watching this maybe more closely than me, have you seen um, it bleed into the? Presidential? Unfortunately, unfortunately, several of the Republican. Yeah, who's gone after it? Pence and DeSantis have basically said they agree with Tuberville. It's I a, think. I yeah. think so. It tell, that's what tells me this is a political, totally a political issue. Right. Um, they've got no business weighing in on this and certainly have no business saying we ought to be. Well, and Pence and DeSantis, their whole strategy is Iowa. The pro-life community in Iowa is what it's all about. Yeah. The well, evangelical and, and, community. Yeah, I, I don't so know. This, I don't have that. You could see that. Inter- you could have that. You see, you could. Yeah, you could see that intersection. So politically, you're 100 percent right. It makes sense. Yeah. And, and you know, I actually I actually had a very pleasant conversation with Senator Tuberville when he first came to the Senate talking about SEC football. I'm a big Georgia football fan. And of course, he was the coach at Auburn. So we we talked SEC football. I, I wish he would, you know, maybe he ought to keep Auburn from playing Georgia this year. We whipped them pretty bad last year. Um, <laughs> oh, now it's really getting personal. But, it, but, but, but again, there, a good example of what's happening in the Marine Corps is you have Eric Smith, who's the assistant commandant. That's still his billet because he didn't get confirmed. He's doing the equivalent of two full-time four-star jobs right now. It'd be like asking the Auburn quarterback to play Offensive tackle and quarterback at the same time. That's what's happening. So I, I don't think people really understand how detrimental this really is on a day-to-day basis. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. 
Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Do you think there's anything that Biden and the White House could be doing to raise the pressure on this? Yes, I think the Pentagon and the White House was a little slow yeah. when he first put the hole on back in February. I think people thought, you know, this is probably just a passing thing. It'll only be a couple of weeks. Nobody would basically really do this to our military. And so I think we got off to a little, people like myself got jumped on it right away. But, but because been around a long time and having to live through that, but now there's there's more. Certainly, they're speaking out now, and certainly the rank and file are coming in. And, and for example, if you are a 06, a colonel going to one star, and you've been in the government for 25 to 27 years and living on a government salary, the difference in pay at the higher rank is over fifty thousand dollars a year. That's a lot of money for somebody in yeah, the military. Absolutely. And guess what? They won't get back pay. They're not going to ever get it back. They only get started pay. So he's depriving them of pay and benefits. Kids are have registered out of the school because they thought they were moving. They can't move, so they're not. Uh, spouses have, have quit their jobs because they were going to move and go get another job, and now they're in limbo. It's a mess. It's really a mess. And, and uh, I remember one time when Senator Nunn was chairman, Wendell Ford, who was a good friend of Senator Nunn's from Kentucky, he was the number two guy in the Senate. And he bet he was he had a beef with the Pentagon about C-130s being based in Kentucky. So there was a military person that he put on hold when we were getting ready to pass him. And and I heard about it from the, the Senate cloakroom. So I went and told Senator Nunn, hey, Senator Wendell Ford has put a hold on. I can't remember the name, but it was like a th two star or three star. Maybe it was a three going to four, I think. Senator Nunn jumped up from his desk in the Dirksen building. We're going to the floor. He goes right over to the floor tracks down Wendell Ford and says, Wendell, we don't do that. Hmm. Said, why don't you hold Don Rice, the nominee to be Secretary of the Air Force? You could get some real leverage on the Air Force on C-130s, but we are not holding up the military. So, you know, you, you just don't do that. It's just not done. All right. On this other issue of wokeness in the military, and look, you probably saw this coming because this has been an issue that's been bubbling up on the right for a while. And usually when that happens, there's an attempt to trans translate it into some legislative language. And you said before that you don't even know what this means. But it is now a matter of faith that the military has become this the target of social engineering by uh, the Biden administration, and that had, it has implemented all sorts of uh, issues. And I'm, I'm sort of trying to channel the, the, the language of, of the critics um, that try and interpret critical race theory and, and, and turn that into policy at the Pentagon and the agenda of the trans rights movement and a whole basket of social policies that the Republican Party right now is really organized around opposing um, and, and that the, the Pentagon has become no longer the mean, efficient fighting machine 
um, partly because of this and that recruitment is at a relative low point uh, because of this. Um, and, you know, our preparations for, for a war with China are suffering. This is this is the argument. What's your view of all of that? So I, I would say- and, and which parts of that, you know, do you give any credence to? And from your perspective as someone who understands the nitty gritty of this, not just the kind of like, you know, side swiping and general statements, how has the Pentagon changed in, in any of the ways that the, the, the critics are, are describing? What's sort of the, the, the truth versus the reality? And are there any readiness issues or issues at all that, that you see? Is well, any of this justified? Certainly we've got- A lot big, to unpack there, but- Yeah, help, we've help got me. big challenges in the military and some of people, and, and I'll go through them here, and some of it people will say, well, it's due to this social engineering wokeness, but actually probably it isn't. So right now we're spending more in constant dollars than the peak of the Reagan buildup. And yet we have a million less active duty people. The war fighting, we have 50% less uh, Army combat brigades, uh, Marine regiments, Navy ships, fighter airplanes. So we're not getting the bang for the buck we should for the dollars we spend. We should be getting a heck of a lot more combat power for $886 billion a year than we're getting. And so- Is there a simple reason for that? Yeah, there's a, there's a simple, there's three reasons for it. Yeah. One, uh, we spend the acquisition process where you spend more, take longer, get less of the $420 billion we spend a year on goods and services, supplies and equipment, uh, where we where a, a you know massive weapon system cost it takes 25 years to get a new system in the field. So the acquisition system, there are over you know 180,000 you know employees working in that, 35,000 contracting officers, very inefficient and very slow. And everybody knows that. Uh, we also have massive overhead in the Department of Defense. Defense-wide spending has gone from 5% of the budget to over 20%. If you add in some of the classified, I think it's closer to 30%. Hmm. And these huge defense agencies in when they first started, we had one. Now we have 28, the Defense Logistics Agency, the Defense Commissary Agency. These are huge. The DOD dependent schools, $3.5 billion a year. These are huge overhead costs in the Department of Defense. And then the all-in cost of the all-volunteer force, which is 50 years, uh, it, when they did away with the draft in 73 and went to the volunteer force, we've had to save it two or three times. And we've had recruiting challenges before. So a lot of the challenges that we're facing where people say, wait a minute, why is the military having all these problems? Well, it must be because it's woke. It must be because it's climate change. It must be because this, that, and the other thing. Um, so right. some you of raised the, another one. That's right. So, they don't so, want the military so the recruiting challenges, climate change. Yeah. basically, uh, first of all, the target population is the 18 to 24-year-olds. The propensity to enlist is way down. We've seen this before. 85% of that target population that wants a job could get another job somewhere if they want a job. Right. Good economy. Um, so the good the economy sons and daughters of the military aren't joining at the rate they used to be. And, and the costs are, are astronomical. So it's not like we're not paying them. Um, it's, so this is a real challenge. But And the biggest problem is of the co that cohort, 18 to 24-year-olds, a large percentage are not physically qualified, mentally qualified, or medically qualified. And so you know, uh, so that's a that's a challenge. And a lot of people say, wait a minute, you know, if I join the military, I may have to go into combat and they're, they're not interested in that. So so but so when you said, said when you when when Ron DeSantis says 
people don't want to go. Kids don't want to go in the military because it's too woke. What do you say? Well, there may be there may be some kids that think it is too woke, and they may they, they probably aren't accurate about that. But there are a lot of re- I'd said the major reasons they don't want to go in the military are the ones that the detailed surveys that we've done show why they don't want to go in the military. I would say in the South, the vaccine thing was an issue. Interesting, um, yeah. because the Alabama, Georgia, Georgia always ship more new recruits per capita for our state than any other state. And they see, and, and you know, there are people that, that don't believe in the vaccinations. Although in the military, you know, when I went over to Vietnam, we had to get all kinds of vaccinations. Yeah. We had to get the anthrax shot in the second Gulf War, whether we wanted it or not. Yeah. And, and one of the amendments on the f- Senate floor yesterday was uh, from Senator Cruz was, hey, look, all these people, since there's no long a requirement for vaccination, all these people that got pushed out when they didn't get the vaccination ought to be able to come back in and get back pay. Senator Reed's point was, look, we, we run a military. If you're in the military, you got to obey a legal order, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And these people did not obey a legal order. And so really, we got to take that into account. I'm, I'm kind of with Senator Reed on on this one. You know, and Whether you like the been, policy or not, that's what yeah, you're we've been, up for. And, you know, and that's the same thing with, with, with Tuberville. I mean, you know, it's a legal order. By the way, none of the people he's holding up had anything to do with his policy, right. not one of right. them. And right. so, again, you, you, he's taken the wrong hostages in my in my judgment. But back to the your, your bigger yeah. question, there are probably things. So we want in the military, we want to recruit and retain the very best people. And we have a promotion and management system that does that. Everybody doesn't get to stay in the military after their first tour or second tour. On the officer ranks, we have something we call the upper out promotion system. So from uh, second lieutenant to first lieutenant, pretty much automatic. First lieutenant to captain, maybe 85%. Captain to major, about 75%. Major to lieutenant colonel, 60%. Lieutenant Colonel to Colonel, 50%. Colonel to General Officer, less than, you know, 10%. So so we have a system for making sure we only keep the very, very best people. I don't think that matches up with, with these concerns people have that our military is too woke. Whatever that is. Again, I don't even what do know you, what it when is. When you hear, when you, when you talk to Republican senators who maybe you respect a little bit more than Tuberville or yep. Cruz, and, no, I, I respect oh, both sorry, of them. Sorry, I, sorry. I just don't agree with them on the, on a couple of their amendments. But again, sure, they could fair. be our biggest ally on another amendment tomorrow. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Um, is there any is there any Republican senator who you think has a more nuanced case on, on this issue of wokeness? Is there any you know is there any opinion you that that's you, I'm trying to find the best version of this argument if it exists. You know, because frankly, when I hear Ron DeSantis talk about it, it just sounds like but a bunch I mean, of so, talking so, points. So when Roger. Yeah. Wicker, the yeah. ranking member, talks about it. When Jim Emhoff used to talk about it, when yeah. Dan Sullivan talks about it, when Jody Ernst talks about it, we should pay attention. Is there anything? But are they saying anything that's got any any? Um, you know, I haven't. Probably, I haven't yeah. really followed. Uh, yeah. uh, you know yeah. where they are, but, but I, you're know, not I know. I know. I know they have some lingering concerns, and we ought to pay attention to that. Look. Yeah. The Pentagon doesn't get everything right. right. I mean, when you've been doing this as long as I've doing it, and you've been through as many markups as I've been through, and you, the Pentagon comes over and says everything is hunky dory, and you know it, you know it's not. They make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. I mean, if it was up to the Pentagon, we wouldn't have had the stealth fighters that we had to start Desert Shield, Desert Storm, because yeah. they, the Air Force wanted to kill off the last two squadrons. The Congress kept it going. We wouldn't have the V-22 in the Marine Corps because the Pentagon yeah. at the time tried to kill it. And so they don't get it right. So, you know, uh, th- we have very thoughtful members yeah. on both sides of the aisle. Um, but the problem you have on this issue of the social engineering 
is because people have made it into such a political issue. Yeah. It, it's just not being handled in a very thoughtful and deliberative way. And so you, your instinct is we ought to get to the meeting potatoes of the issue and find out, you know, for example, when all this thing was about white supremacy and, you know, John Whitley, who was the acting secretary of the army for five months into the uh, Biden administration, when they were looking at this, they they found you know they did they were looking at all the this is about survey. like extremist views in yeah, the military yeah and, yeah and 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 they were they found a lot that they should look at and they ended up finding maybe five people in an army of you know a million and so some of this is just you know you you need the facts and and yeah. it's not clear people will argue are we spending too much on climate change this is the next one all right so that that's and, an, and that's so, another one that's come up yeah. in the amendment process yeah is and DeSantis talks about this a lot too is that he doesn't want the military prioritizing climate change because it may be at the expense of readiness. Right. As an expert on this, what's your, what, what's your we- view? Weather is a big deal in the military. <laughs> yeah, someone that had to operate in monsoons and had to operate in the mountains of Vietnam, weather is yeah. a big deal. And I mean, yeah. if, if, if you, when George Patton in the Seventh Army was racing to free our troops that were surrounded in Bastogne, uh, and this is fact. Uh, he had the chaplain pay for good weather so he could get air cover. Weather's a big deal. In Norfolk, Virginia, we're having to spend $2 billion to raise the piers so our sailors can get on the ships because of climate change. So I'm not an expert on what's causing it, and I don't get into that argument, but but weather's a big deal. And so we need to deal with that. And so I think maybe they're spending too much money on alternative fuels on or electric something like vehicles. that. Yeah. Or electric vehicles. Yeah. I don't know the answer on that. Maybe, but but certainly being able to operate in every climate place, being able to operate 24-7, our military advantage over our adversaries, we can operate morning, noon, and night. We can operate in all weather. You know, you need to spend money on that, and you need yeah. to be. And by the way, if we, the fact that the ice pack is melting in the Arctic is not a good thing because the, the Russians can and the Chinese can now get places a lot quicker because they don't have to worry about that. We had an advantage because we had submarines that could operate under the ice. And so the, the fact that these things are changing, weather and, and climate patterns impact military operations. The other issue that has come up is, in the, especially in the wake of the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, is about the military and affirmative action and the service academies. Have you been following that closely? I have been following it, yeah. and, and, and I think um, just explain the explain a little bit of the, the the debate and the history. I mean, from what I've always been taught is that the military is the most successful institution in American public life right. in terms of diversity and integration, and has been a champion of affirmative action and has, you know, is very, very successful. A few places you go uh, with as diverse a population working at every level together than, than the military. Correct me if I'm well, wrong. Well, I'm, I'm not and sure. Yeah, I'm not sure I would call it affirmative action. I would say that basically, um, you know, when you look at the demographics in our country and you look at, you know, how the population is changing, the, the number of females, uh, others, we we got to have those people in our military. Right. You, you we and the right now been successful we, in doing that. Yes, we could and integrating them in and allowing them to w- females can go into any any job in our military now and they v- do very well. I mean, I think about the fact in Vietnam, my little old Marine platoon, they were all draftees and most of them were nor- minorities from lower socioeconomic because uh, the rich kids and and other kids uh, got off. They didn't get drafted. They avoided yeah. the draft like like the two people I mentioned at the beginning uh, of our talk. 
but these young kids did a terrific job. They did everything that our country asked them to do. You can argue about whether or not we should have been in Vietnam, but as combat Marines. And so uh, we need people of all, uh, uh, we need those people. You, you, you could not man our military if we didn't reach out and bring in a diverse set of, and that doesn't mean it's affirmative action, it's just yeah. the demographics of our country and the fact that we need those people um, in, in our military. Tell us, what's, what is the debate now over affirmative action in the military that's, uh, that's another well, one we of should these? Always, we should always basically uh, recruit and retain the very best and the best qualified and the, keep those systems that basically monitor how people do in uniform and how they get their fitness reports and keep the very best people independent of, of where they come from or their background. Yeah. And, and for me, in the service academies, they ought to bring in the very best. And they shouldn't, you know, uh, tilt one way or the other based on those kind of factors. And so I, I think we do that. Yeah. Uh, and I think in our military, um, and again, some, for example, in the, in the Marine Corps, uh, in the officer ranks, when I was still on active duty and, and a general officer, our minorities were not getting promoted uh, at, at, at a percentage. And that was because they came in with some disadvantages because of their background. And we were not spending as much time. Uh, training and educating them as we should have. And of course, we got that changed. And now, you know, they all, you know, everybody should have an even Stephen chance uh, to basically succeed in our military. And, and And I think and again, if we ever we what's the issue that what am I what's the issue that uh, has been raised in in the amendment process with affirmative action in the military in, ter- in terms of our I, list, I think, in terms I of think, our list here? I think on the list up today, I think there's an amendment that basically says the service academies cannot take affirmative action into account when they admit because they were carved out in the Supreme Court opinion. Or- That's correct. The Chief Justice carved them out and said the military academies can still you know, make that distinction. But the way the process works, most of the, it used to be all political. Now it's all based on the merits. Even, even the congressmen and senators that get to make appointments, it's competitive. It's based on the merits. And so I think that's the right way. Again, these are our premier military academies, even though we get a lot more commissions from OCS and ROTC. And by the way, ROTC uh, does very fine in and the statistics show that academy graduates don't stay any longer or fare any better in promotion than OCS or ROTC. But we need the service academies. But it yeah. ought to be based on merit. The people, I mean, we're paying, you know, a heck of a lot of money to educate these young uh, people that are going to be in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and Space Force. And so yeah. we ought to pick the very best. And and again, the the it's a volunteer force. And and we need volunteers from every every part of our country and every, every walk of life, or we're not going to be able to man the force um, so from your perspective, what, who are the, the troublemakers in the next generation on both sides in the, in the Senate who view things differently? So the House, unfortunately, uh, we have a lot of members of the Senate that started in the House and they learned some bad lessons in the House because whoever was in charge of the House, whether it was the Democrats for many, many years or then with the Republicans under Newt Gingrich and it's gone back and forth, they don't treat the minority well at all. They don't give them the time of day. Yeah. It's very, very political and partisan. That's never been the way the Senate's worked. The Senate can't work like that. And right. unfortunately, we have a lot of people that have come over from the House and they learned some bad lessons in the House. They have to unlearn them in the Senate. And you have them in both parties. I mean, I have a saying that, you know, the far left of the Democratic Party is very far left and the far right of the Republican Party is very far right. Um, the wings are flapping and there's no fuselage. So the, 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 <laughs> the middle, the middle that used to run the Senate, when Senator Nunn was there, 
if you didn't get the people in the middle like Sam Nunn and Dave Bourne and Nancy Kassebaum and Bennett Johnson and Pat Leahy and Bill Cohen and people like that, you couldn't pass anything. And so there's there's hardly a middle left in either party anymore. And that's a real that's a real problem now on social issues and domestic stuff. Now, fortunately, we still have a, a pretty strong bipartisan support on the defense and foreign policy. Just to wrap up this this conversation, let me ask you this. How many senators do you uh, anticipate you will be talking to between today and when they go home? Well, today, today I doubt very many because they're all on the floor and they're all <laughs> hustling around the I boats and, and you can't and you can't get to them. So, I mean, we'll be talking to a lot of the staff. I, I mean, you know, as an old staffer, you know, I don't I don't insist that I talk to a senator. I'm happy talking to the staff. Um, and what are you going to be telling them as they try and what, un- what I'm going to be focused thing. on is the is the end game for conference for the defense appropriation bill. Tester and Susan Collins are marking their bill up today, and they've got a, that both the authorization bill and the appropriation bill has got to be approached in a nonpartisan or bipartisan way, or we're going to be headed for a government shutdown on one October. If they are not able to basically take out the poison pills in the House defense funding bill and the House authorization bill. And if McCarthy is not willing to allow those bills to pass with bipartisan votes in the House, then we're headed for the worst of all outcomes, the government shutdown on 1 October. It's a good place to end. Thank you very much for doing this. I learned a lot. Well, it's a privilege to be here. Really appreciate it. Sure. Anytime. That's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thank you to Joe Dobkin for the editing help this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.